At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us. Well, thanks so much uh, for allowing Angie, my wife, and I to be with you guys uh, today. And when Jeremy called and asked if I would step in for him, I was happy to say yes. And uh, several years ago when, when Briella came along, along with some other kiddos in the church where I was getting the pastor, we decided that Pastor Philip was maybe too many syllables for little ones, and so Doc uh, was chosen as a nickname, and so I'm, I'm always uh, fond to be able to hear that out of Briella's little, sweet little voice. Uh, if you got your Bibles, I hope you do, um, you can turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bible, whichever is appropriate to you, uh, and we are going to look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 15 through 21, and I, I want to talk about the idea of having a beautiful life. And, and I know that maybe immediately that's not exactly uh, the adjective that you were looking for for your life. Oftentimes we, uh, we immediately go toward, I want a victorious life, I want an overcomer life, I want to have the best life, I want... And, and you put in your adjective of what it means for you to have whatever that supreme, ultimate kind of experience is. But I do believe that as we look at the scriptures and we see the gospel and, and the impact that the gospel has upon us, that, that there lays out before us, both here in Ephesians and in a lot of the writings of the New Testament, that we have the ability to put on display the beautiful impact that the gospel has on us, that Christ has died on the cross in our place for our sins, that he physically is dead and buried and then is victoriously risen from the dead. And we are invited that if we'll put our faith in him, that we can inherit eternal life that Jesus defined in John chapter 17, verse 3, as knowing God and the one he has sent. That it's not just about an eternal destiny in a beautiful uh, city, but rather it is the ability and the invitation to know the one true God, to know the Savior that he has sent. And, and by accepting that gospel and living in it, then there is this opportunity for it to take impact and root in our life where you have a beautiful life. The book of Ephesians it follows the pattern that a lot of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, where the first half or the first two-thirds is doctrinal and theological, big ideas. And then the back half or the back third will be very practical, down in the weeds. How do you live this out? Ephesians is no different than that. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 deal with big doctrinal truths, big ideas that we can ruminate on and lots and lots and lots of books and commentaries have been written about. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 begin to explain, okay, if you take this big gospel, this huge idea of being unified with Christ into salvation, well, what does that mean for a Thursday morning when you have to go into that team meeting at work? What does that mean for... Uh, a Tuesday afternoon when you got to pick up the kids from school and everybody's in a bad mood because uh, it, you know they got assignments they didn't like and you got chores you don't want to do and there's a grocery store that you got to run to. You know what does it mean in the daily paces of life? 
But I love the fact that Ephesians, when you begin to really dig into it, you find out exactly how relational this whole thing is. That it's not just big doctrinal ideas that are floating out in the atmosphere and some kind of ethereal place where we just want theologians and philosophers and seminary professors thinking about it, but that this is a, a letter, this is a book that's written to just normal, everyday believers like you and I, that God wants us to understand it and then begin applying it into our lives, but lives plural, not just your life. What I see about Ephesians is I've read it and I dug back into it this past week as I was getting ready is just how intimate and relational this whole thing is. And we know that God created us for relationships. We know that he wants us to be related to him, but also these are the things that have impact on not just you and because you've been saved or maybe today you're thinking of becoming a Christian and you might be saved on this day, but how the gospel, once it takes root in your heart and transforms you, how it begins to impact all the people around you as well. So what I want to do this morning is just walk us back through this passage verse by verse. I think there's one idea I just want to kind of pluck from each one of these verses quickly and then give you some wrap-up like, what does this all mean for us in terms of how do you live out this beautiful life? So uh, let's start back up at verse 15 where Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk. And by he's, when he's saying how you walk, it means how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. The first thing that I want to encourage you about having a beautiful life that's a display of the gospel is that you have a discerning life. I mean, there's so much information that floats around in the ether. Uh, you know, it's fake news that and fake news the other. And what's the real truth and your truth and my truth and our truth and their truth? And yet, here's God uh, from his throne room writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into the life of Paul to give to the Ephesian church to be passed down these uh, you know, almost 2,000 years now to us saying, don't live as unwise, but live as wise. If we go back in the Old Testament, we find an entire book called the book of Proverbs filled with wise principles for living. If we go forward into the New Testament, we get to the book of James where God makes a promise that if you ask for wisdom, that he will give it liberally, abundantly, and graciously to you. And you and I don't have to worry about whether or not we can figure out this life. We are guaranteed because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit in our life that we have access to the heavenly wisdom. And I want to encourage you that you're probably farther along than you think if you're a believer. You have certainly, we all have more access than maybe we take advantage of. But we do spend our time kind of buckling up and, and buttoning up all sorts of other knowledge. I am a little bit of an information junkie. I'm more than a little bit. I am a huge information junkie. I troll way too many websites. I look at way too many news sources. I, I love finding out something new every other day. I know way too much about the MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I can talk for way too long about paper opacity because I'm in the publishing industry. I can talk to you about why there's a shortage 
age of shipping containers and the global supply chain. I mean, we all have those little nuggets of knowledge where you've gone so deep and down the rabbit hole about something, where we just get, you know, we just get revved up about knowing about that thing. Some of you are really handy and, and you know, mechanically inclined. I, myself, am mechanically declined. If you need somebody to come over to your house and break something today, I'll be happy to serve you. But when it comes to living out the impact of the gospel, we're told don't live as unwise in this world, live as wise people. And it, it reminds me, there's this one little verse in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, where it's going through this litany of, of giving a genealogy of this one particular tribe in Israel. And it names this one family, the family of Issachar. And normally it would just say, and here are the people that were in the family of Issachar, and it would move on, and here's the people who are in the family of Manasseh, and here are the people who are in the family of Jeroboam. But there's this pause, and it said, And the men of Issachar understood their times and knew what Israel should do. It's this great little commentary. And that it can be so true of you and I as we allow the gospel to take root and have its impact that we are people that we don't have to walk around in just the fog of war of this world and just cloudy in our minds, but that we can access the heavenly wisdom that God has available for us. Well, then he goes on in verse 16, and he says, Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Not only should you have a discerning life because of the gospel, but you and I can have an engaged life. He says, make the most of your time. Redeem that time. Now, I want to say that there is a warning here that we find throughout a lot of the scripture that spiritual idleness is not just a waste of time and spiritual idleness is not just a silly use of your time. I think that we we could say authoritatively from scripture that spiritual idleness is actually a sinful use of your time. When you just let all of this that God has done in you just go to waste and you don't redeem the days, this is, uh, you're actually just kind of flittering away. Sorry, I'm from Alabama, and so flittering away. Uh, You're just kind of giving it all up and just letting it pass by. And instead, he says, redeem the time for the days are evil. I don't think that anybody in this room is, uh, that you're confused about whether or not the world is still evil. Every once in a while, we kind of get cloistered away into our little evangelical bubbles uh, on our church campuses or with our small groups, and we just want to kind of hide our kids here, and we just want to kind of cloister ourselves away and have our own retreat away from the rest of the world because we recognize that we're not living in the new Jerusalem yet. We're still perpetually living in the old Babylon of this world. And God is calling us to be that salt and that light into the world, acting as the people of redemption, crying out that they would see the God who is there, the Christ who has died for them, and the opportunity that they have for redemption. And so he says, redeem your days by participating, I think, in the redemptive work of God. What is it that the Lord is doing in the world, in your community around us, and how can we participate in it? It's why we send kids on on local mission trips. 
It's why you engage with people in redemptive conversations at work and in the neighborhood because you know that you've got this limited space and time here on this terrestrial ball. And so you want to redeem those moments and not just let them pass by just with idle chatter. Well, then he goes on and he says in verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. A discerning life, an engaged life. I want to also say a God-centered life. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. One of the biggest questions we ever have, isn't it? When you're lying there in the bed in the dead of night and things have just sprung apart and, and it feels like life is ripping apart from the seams or when you're a teenager and you're thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to be a doctor or a pilot? Am I going to get married one day? Am I going to be successful? Is it going to be hard? Is it going to be easy? And you cry out in, just out into the heavenlies, God, what is your will? What is your will for me? Well, there's a revealed will of God that I think we find throughout all of the scriptures uh, that we can anchor ourselves into. One of the places is in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus is speaking, and they said, and somebody asked him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them in verse 29 of John 6 This is the work of God. Don't you love it when Jesus is that plain? This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. I mean, the very first part of the work of God is believe in Christ. Believe in who he is and believe in the work that he's done. Believe in the one that God has sent. Later on, one of the, one of the important works that we have from Paul that, that God includes into the New Testament is the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says that through whom, through Jesus, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. I mean, if you want to know what the will of God is and you want your life to be centered in onto the will of God, Jesus says the work of God is that you would believe. Paul reiterates and he says to the Roman believers, the work of God now that you believe is to make him known and so that people would be obedient to the faith. They'd come into the faith so that God will be famous among the nations. This is the bigger thing that we could live for. I, I have a fascinating job. Maybe you feel like at times you have a very boring job or a very exciting job. I have a fascinating job, which means some days it's incredibly boring and tedious, and other days I, you know, I just I, I get exuberant about what I get to do. There are some days that I'm swimming in a sea of Excel spreadsheets, which I believe that if there is a library in hell, it is it is just printed out spreadsheets. I mean, that's just, it's just at times can just be torturous. And there are other days where I just have so much fun with my team and we're picking out new content and we're looking at publications of the next Bibles and, and religious commentaries. And, and so there are days that are fun and there are days that are not. But what I get to recognize is that no matter whether I were to be a ditch digger or I was working in a, on a factory floor, or I'm home with kids, or I'm talking with a neighbor, or I'm doing my job for which I get a salary. In all of these things, I can think about how do I remain obedient to the faith 
that Christ has called me to? And how can I draw other people to it? That I get to live for something bigger than myself through all of the many relationships that God has graced me with. Whether it's just the the little acquaintance with the guy who is my barber that I'm just beginning to build a friendship with or whether it's with my next door neighbors that they're not really engaged but I think maybe over the course of time we can get to know them or whether it's just the rando person that you just met or somebody that you've known all the way back through high school. That we have that God-centered life where everything is about how do I be obedient to the faith and how do I bring other people to it. Well, then he says in verse 18, he extends this idea. And he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, big Bible word, but be filled with the Spirit. And this idea that you get to choose every single day, what is it that you're going to fill your life with? And you can just be passive and you can kind of sit back and wait and, and allow the, word, the world just to foist upon you whatever it is that they want to fill you with. And in this passage, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and he's like, you got to be careful with strong drink. Don't just allow yourself to be overcome and overwhelmed by it because that will lead to a reckless kind of living. That's what debauchery means. It's not just, it's not just ill-fitted for the Christian. It means just like wheels off, reins off, hands off the wheel, and it's not like Jesus take the wheel kind of living. I mean, it's just wild, reckless living. And, and so you and I have this opportunity to choose a more mature way rather than the immaturity of just letting the world fill you with whatever it has. Because here's the deal. We all know that if you just sit back and just open up the void of your life that I'm kind of empty at the moment, the world will just dump all of its stuff in there. It, the, uh, the, the tempter is there. You know, the adversary is there, the world is there, and they want to shape and form and mold you and convince you that what it has is enough. And then we always find out at the end of the day, it was never enough. Or you and I can joyfully submit to the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This beautiful gift of God that the third member of the Trinity has given himself to us in salvation as the down payment and the securing deposit of our eternal destiny. And that he has sealed us for the day of salvation. And that we are secure in him. And that day by day, that we can have a life that discerns wisdom, that engages the culture, that centers ourselves on God, and that is filled by the Spirit. Which will then lead us then to verse 19, where he says, And addressing one another... In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I think the fifth way that you can look at this of a beautiful life is that you have a worshiping life. Now, I'll tell you, uh, pastors and staff members and worship leaders, we love this verse. Because we use it and we will take this verse, and I think it's applicable into worship services like we're in right now, and we've seen this on display. We've read it. We've read a psalm. We've had some spiritual songs. We've, we have sung a hymn. We've, made, we've sung and we've made melody uh, to the Lord with our hearts. But when Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church, if you look at the whole context, never does he mention a worship service. He's not just necessarily applying this to the one hour that you and I are going to get together on a Sunday morning. But in the natural paces of life, think about the beauty that will show up 
if the native language of Christians one to another is worship. Now, it doesn't mean that every time you get together and you shake hands or you hug or you fist bump or whatever COVID greeting you have decided upon, that you got to quote Psalm 32 to each other or you got to sing Man of Sorrows to one another. But what if it became just so natural that when you and I get together as believers, that it is just part of the conversation that we talk about the greatness of God, of what he's done in our lives over the last weeks or months? What if suddenly the watching world of coworkers and family members and neighbors that are not believers yet, that they constantly were hearing you speak about the greatness of God? One of the things I've always kind of aimed at as a when I have served as a pastor is that I love the idea that when people would come to our worship services and our small groups that they would walk away saying those are really nice people. And that's a pretty good standard to have. But how about this for a better standard? When they would walk away from Woodside Bible Church in Plymouth that they would walk out the door saying those people worship a really great God. That what they walk away from is, is just absolutely blown away by how celebratory and effusive we are. Not just because they were in our worship service, but because they were at dinner with us. Because they had a casual conversation with us. Because they hung out with us at the park. Because they were around us and they just absolutely couldn't get past just how beautiful Christ is to us. And so worship can be that native language for you and I. A couple of other things with these verses. He says there in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I need to have a grateful life. I mean, we have so much afforded to us. We have so much afforded to us culturally, but think about what we have afforded to us spiritually. And I, and I get it. Thankfulness on its face is easy. But what he says with the added phrases of thankfulness always and for everything, not as easy. Because guess what? This week, something's going to go wrong. This week, a kid is going to rebel. This week, you're going to get into you know, kind of a, a spiteful match with somebody. This week, the news is going to be bad because the news is always bad. Uh, this week, things are not going to go your way. You're going to get a flat tire. Uh, you know, your timing belt's going to break. Your, your lawnmower's not going to start. They're not going to have what you need at the store. And yet, he says, you have the opportunity to be thankful in all things for everything. Because weighing our lives in the balance, we have so many more blessings than we can possibly imagine. It does remind me, I think about this every so often when I come to a passage about gratefulness of a particular pastor I met when I was traveling and I was in Southeast Asia in the country of Myanmar, which used to be known as Burma. It's just northwest of Thailand. And I went into kind of a medium-sized city and met this one particular pastor and spent a few days with he and his congregation and and, and I came to, found, to find out, I mean, he was so joyful just all the time. And they, li they lived in such meager circumstances. And as far as I know, I'm the only American, probably the only Western person that he had ever met. Certainly everybody in the village, they were like, rando American just showed up. And I was there teaching and preaching and just trying to help as I could with some partners that were on the field. 
And what I came to find out about this pastor is that he had been HIV positive for about 15 years. He had been a, he had been a, a drug runner. He, was addic- he had been addicted to drugs. It was through dirty needles that he had become HIV positive. He had very little access to medicines and literally just survived on the prayers of the congregation. But he was consistently, day after day, hour after hour, just joyful just thankful. Every person who came into the meeting, he was just effusive about how glad he was that they were there. Every opportunity that he had to be able to care for somebody else, it was just like it was brand new to him every single time. And I think back to how grateful he was in the difficult circumstances that he lives, knowing that I was going to go back to the United States of America and block fly a big old plane and go back to my big old house, to my cars, and to my big old closet full of clothes, and and just have access to every streaming service on the internet, and and medicines as, as much as I could ever want for and hope for, and just everything that I need, and here he was just living in, in, in these just, in the, in just the, the place that really did define the rock and the hard place. And yet he was so grateful because Christ had just become everything for him. And the value of Christ so outranked any hardship in his life. And I think, I get mad when my toe hurts. I get frustrated when the report is late. I, 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 get, I got sideways, I will tell you, I got so sideways on Friday because I was in the middle of a big Microsoft Teams meeting, gathered with a bunch of other leaders in my company, and the internet service in our house went down, and I had to go reset the router. And it was like, you know, and it was, you know, like I was on a death march to have to go to, you know, up to the den to unplug the thing and wait 30 seconds and plug it back in, and you know, just this interminable amount of time. And yet here's this guy living out in the bush of Myanmar, just overjoyed and thankful for everything that Christ had graced him with. You and I, what happens if we allow that kind of gratefulness begin to just color our lives as an impact that the gospel has changed us? What a witness that would be to the people around us. And then finally, verse 21, and I'll just touch upon this as I begin to try to land the plane here in just a second. He said, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yeah, submit. Boy, doesn't that sound fun? You know, uh, you probably have heard Pastor Jeremy or other pastors before say, you know, the English language here kind of falls short a little bit and doesn't really help us as much. And, and the Greek language of the New Testament, or maybe he's preaching out of the Old Testament, the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, really it means this, 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 and this, and it's this really big idea. But here, the English language is exactly what the Greek language is. There's nothing different. It means submit. It means the person who's sitting right down the pew from you, that you have the opportunity because of reverence toward Christ and the work that he is doing in that person's life, that you choose to serve them, set all of your needs, all your wants, all your hopes, dreams, whatever it was that you were going to do today, you set that aside and, you, and looking at what Christ is doing in their life or could do in their life, potentially might do in their life, 
that you submit to them and say, how can I serve you today? Because I want the glory of the gospel and the goodness of the grace of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the beauty of what he might be doing in you. I want that to come to the forefront. Submitting because we see and it becomes an easy motivation because I want Christ to be known. And so I can set aside whatever it was I was doing or needed or thought about Because I want to see that come alive in you. Well, all of this, let me just wrap it all up together with what I think will be maybe three easy but hopefully helpful kind of practical ideas that I just want to quickly run through. Number one, every Christian is called to be persuasive and peculiar. You kind of look around and you go, well, I've met some of the peculiar people here. I mean, some of you, yes, very peculiar, a little odd, a little strange. Well, I picked that word on purpose because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, if you read that verse out of the King James Version, it says that we are a peculiar people. It says we're a royal priesthood, uh, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. But what, it, but what it means, and I like the idea because it kind of arrests us and makes us pause for a second. In modern translations like the ESV and others, it will say a people of his own possession. We are peculiarly, man, that's a hard word to say, are particularly owned and possessed by God. We are peculiar. We're different. We're not the same as everybody else. Everybody else still owned by themselves. Everybody else still on the throne of their lives. Everybody else still trying to manage and navigate their way forward. But you and I, because of the gospel and its impact, you and I are a peculiar people Because we are owned. We are the possession of God. He has taken hold of our lives and brought us into his family. Brought us to his dining table. Made us the inheritors of his kingdom. And we're called to have a persuasive life. Which leads me to number two. A holy life is a persuasive life. And I get it that probably when you think about holy is the first thing that comes to mind is kind of the same thing that all of us come to mind is like that one person who's got all of their morals and ethics on lockdown. And and like we got to create our own little evangelical Amish community. We need to pick our favorite century and go back and live in it and kind of, you know, push off the modern world. But holiness is so much more. It includes your moral and your ethical choices, but it's more than that. If you begin to look at the whole panorama of Scripture, you see that holiness means having your life set apart for the will and the ways of God. That you have the heart of God for what is his mission in the world and how can I live according to that mission. I walked you through this passage because I want you to have this discerning, engaged, God-centered, spirit-filled, worshiping, grateful, connected life. Because that's not like a life that anybody else has outside of Christ. And it's not just for your good that you would live that kind of way. But think about the impact on your lost neighbor who has got questions. They're not sure God is there. And if he is, does he really care about me? And if he is and he does care about me, like does he care about my marriage that's you know, just springing apart at the seams? Does he care about the job that I just hate and it's just toil and labor and I just put up with? Does he care that, I, that I've got all these burdens and anxieties in my life? 
and a holy life set apart for God where your native language is worship and gratefulness is natural to you and you are filled with the Spirit and operating by heavenly wisdom suddenly becomes very persuasive of people looking in and saying, how do you get that? How do you have that much peace in the midst of all of this chaos? How do you have so much assurance when I have none? And living according to God's will and God's ways suddenly makes our lives very persuasive as ambassadors for Christ in this world. And I think it's all wrapped up in this third idea that I'll begin to conclude with, and that is, for us, grace and truth is the standard that Jesus set. If you will mark down John chapter 1, verse 14. John starts unlike the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all begin with the nativity, the, the birth of Jesus, of, of how did Jesus, how was he incarnated on the earth. John goes all the way back through eternity past, and he begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, in the, he was in the beginning with God. It goes back to this eternal scope of, the, of who the Son of God is. But in talking about the incarnation in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, do you want to see the glory of God? Do you want to know what the glory of God is? He said, And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this kind of life that is defined by the transforming power of the gospel within us is both grace and truth because grace without truth just becomes license to sin. And truth without grace becomes legalism that we just bludgeon everybody with. But Jesus comes and he puts on display for us what a human life filled with grace and truth looks like, where we speak the truth of the gospel and the biblical word to friends that we love and into a culture that needs to hear it, and we live with grace knowing that these are people that are on a journey trying to perceive what does this mean, and yet the Spirit is going to work in them, plowing up the hard and the rocky soil of their hearts so that the seed of the gospel might be planted into it. And so like Jesus, we live in accordance to the will and the ways of God, a holy life, being persuasive and peculiar, a member, a king, the king of the kingdom, and we get to live as members of the kingdom. Friends, you and I get invited to this kind of life. If you're not a believer, today can be that day that you hear this word clearly, that Christ has died for your sins, and he just asks you to trust in his sacrifice for your salvation. If you are a believer, that this sacrifice, atoning for your sins, should be daily shaping and changing how you live. So let me just sum it all up with this one final statement. As a Christian, you are an ambassador representing King Jesus. So choose to live by God's power to display God's glory so others will listen to God's word and become God's people. Allow your life to become this beautiful, joyful, worship-filled, hope 
faith-filled example of the gospel alive in you. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.